This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by Terror Contagion, for your consideration, best documentary short. Academy Award winner Laura Poitras teams with forensic architecture to expose the NSO Group, an Israeli cyber weapons firm whose spyware has enabled corrupt governments to terrorize activists and journalists, including the unconscionable murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Terror Contagion is a powerful, urgent look at the rising threat of the surveillance state and its worldwide implications. Hyperallergic raves that terror contagion is bracing. It drives home the devastating psychological impact of being surveilled. Now available in the Academy Screening Room. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Clinton Crute. We're the editors of Film Comment. With the holidays behind us and a new year of exciting cinema on the horizon, we decided to catch up on some of the recent winter releases that we may have missed. To join us on our journey through the last few weeks of holiday movies, we rang up frequent guest A.S. Hamra, critic for The Baffler, and Simran Hans, critic for The Observer and a first-time visitor to the Film Comment podcast. We discussed blockbusters like The Matrix Resurrections, Don't Look Up, and Being the Ricardos, as well as more nuanced fare, including Maggie Gyllenhaal's The Lost Daughter and Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth. And don't miss Scott's under-the-radar picks for last year, with more than a few unexpected choices. Happy New Year, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. We're so excited to kick off the new year and a new season of the Film Comment podcast with two critics who we're very, very fond of, one of whom has been on the podcast a few times for some blockbuster episodes, I will say. Scott, could you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm A.S. Hamra. I'm the film critic for The Baffler magazine and the author of the book The Earth Dies Streaming from N Plus One Books. Great to have you back, Scott. And we have a debutante, a podcast debutante. Simran, do you want to tell us a little about yourself? Hi, I'm Simran Hans. I'm a film critic for The Observer. I'm based in London. I'm here to help sift through the Hollywood dreck of the last month. The holiday hangover. Exactly. A long-time listener, first-time caller. So happy to be here. <laughs> One movie that I was really excited for, I mean, I, I feel like I don't get a that excited for blockbusters or you know big hollywood movies anymore because they're this it's so much same old same old but i was really excited for the matrix resurrections even though it's a reboot slash sequel and you know this this kind of big production i i think like many of us i am a huge fan of the original matrix and i had like some kind of faith that this particular set of actors and lana wachowski would deliver something that would be at least like entertaining in a not, you know, not in the usual kind of, well, I guess this is a popcorn movie, so I'll suspend my brain kind of way. And I think it paid off for me. But before before I talk about what I liked about it, I know everyone here has seen it. So I don't know, Scott or Simran, you want to start us off? I saw it at home and I loved the first half hour. I really wanted the movie just to be Keanu and uh, other people sitting around in coffee shops and at work talking about, you know, branding and marketing their video games. Uh, I thought the first scene was pretty good, you know, where the youth were uh, introduced. And then, you know, the entire middle section of the film I thought was terrible. I didn't, wasn't interesting to me. It was just like a Netflix TV show. 
it was went on and on and on into the night. And then the last half hour, I kind of liked again, because it returned to, you know, the city. And, uh, you know, those set pieces were quite good, I thought. I thought that it was very strange that Christina Ricci was in it for just one scene. Very odd. I had to look it up at the end. Like She's like, she's like the marketing expert at the office. Yeah, that cameo was also wasted on me. I, I didn't notice that. <laughs> Very she strange. was really good, I thought. And, and you know, the film is specifically about aging and death and being middle-aged and being disappointed and, you know, things not working out. So putting this kind of group of kids from Sense8, mostly, like in a submarine in cyberspace uh, and having them just at the controls of the ship was just empty to me. They mm -hmm. They had no personalities. Right. No, I it was I didn't know why they were there except to appeal to a, a market, which they could have talked about in the first part of the film. Right. Mm -hmm. It know. folds in on itself so much, you know, it could have covered all the bases. <laughs> yes. Well, I had quite a weird experience of, of seeing it because it was the last press screening that I went to before Christmas. And I'm not sure kind of what the situation was like in New York and in other parts of the States, but in London. Omicron was surging. It was very stressful. I was kind of concerned about whether I was going to make it home to see my family over Christmas. So this is the kind of spectre hanging over my screening experience. I'm like, I don't really want to go in, but it's like my last deadline of the year. So I'm just going to go. I didn't speak to anybody. There was the screening was maybe like 70% full, but I didn't speak to anyone. Watched it, had this really emotional reaction to it left went home wrote my review straight away filed my copy and then kind of forgot about it for a few days and the observer is, is the guardian's sunday paper so my review came out a couple of days after everybody else's but of course i'd already filed my copy already kind of written it and wrapped up my thoughts and it was very strange kind of seeing the reaction to the film play out online because the embargo lifted and in the UK, a lot of critics really didn't like this film, really didn't get on with it at all. It was sort of one star, two star pans across the board. And I thought, oh my God, have I seen like a different movie to everyone else? You know, just the total kinds of film critic panic of, you know, have I read this completely wrong? Even though my reaction to it was, was very strong. And then the film came out on the Wednesday. So you then start to see other people's reactions kind of trickling through, um, not just the people who are reviewing it. And it was very interesting to me that slowly as the week progressed, there was sort of a little bit more love kind of seeping out online for it, which uh, made me feel a little bit better or more reassured that my um, my reading of it wasn't totally off base. So what is, what is your reading of it, if you could? I think that it's just a really interesting optimistic take on the original material it's constantly referencing itself but in this really kind of joyful positive um upbeat register that is felt totally unexpected it's so kind of romantic and liberated both in kind of how it handles ideas but also um how it sort of gets rid of the oppressive greenness of uh, of the original movies obviously like that kind of computerized green I don't know I don't know what you call it the sort of the green of the binary code right yeah 
The like hacker screen green. And the grayness. Yeah. It's exactly. sunny in San Francisco in the new That one, kind of right? monochrome look to it with, with the neon green, that's all gone. And now it's this, yeah, kind of Silicon Valley rainbow technicolor kind of thing. Right. And, and and some of it's kind of ugly in a way. Even the dystopian future where they where people are being, you know, and people's energy is still being harvested by machines is much more resembles much more like the Ewok village now than it did in the original <laughs> where it was yeah. just like an under a, a dirt hole that people had to, who'd escaped had dug in the ground you know but but I'm kind of obsessed with the fact that it's it's broken out of that sort of visual binary code I thought that was so interesting as a kind of metaphor visual metaphor for the ideas that the film was dealing with and you know Lana Wachowski made this film as a trans woman. And when those first films were made, it was sort of before any of, of that had been kind of, I don't, I don't want to speak out of term, but like realized for her. Um, and so it's really interesting to see that story kind of um, reflected on from a more liberated place. It's also, yeah, the machines themselves too are much more cuddly and cute in Matrix 4. There's that, there's like a, the flying bird oh, robot bird, that yeah. helps them. Yeah. It is like straight out of an anime. I can't remember any of those machines' names. I mean, I could barely keep track of those during the movie. It was impossible to keep track of yeah. the various characters and the various levels of reality that they yeah. were flipping and the various, in and out of. The various types of creatures in the film. But, you know, Clint, what you just mentioned, I think, is what people have been pointing out as I think the optimistic vision of the film that it's presented in a very direct way, but this idea that machines and humans could build solidarities, you know, and that good or bad isn't just machine or human anymore. And that's like an idea that's that's kind of like you were saying, Simran, it's like this non-binary idea, but it's also, I thought like, it felt like politically relevant too and and hopeful uh you know this idea of coalition building which which is what i thought was really at the heart of the film and where it had come since the prequels should i call them the prequels that feels like cursing <laughs> them uh, since the, the, or the originals the originals um and also scott what you were saying like this is really a movie about aging i think that's what for me the movie had so much sincerity and i think that's what kept me in it throughout, even though I agree with you that there are sections that really just sag. But, you know, instead of uh, sequels and reboots that try to bring back characters or, you know, bring back younger versions of the characters or update the universe in a certain way, I thought it was really smart and, and moving that they stuck to the same characters but acknowledged that those characters are in a different place in like the timeline of The Matrix now and also that the actors are older. I mean, Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss are sort of seem to defy aging, but they also don't look like the same actors who, you know, we who became so iconic, their their faces and their style became so iconic. And so there's something very moving about seeing these older actors actually grapple with aging in the universe of this film. And I just think they're very charismatic. And so 
And not just them. I thought Jonathan Groff was amazing. I mean, I've never seen someone or, or I haven't seen anyone like chew scenery in such an entertaining way in, in any, you know, recent big film. And I thought Neil Patrick Harris was great. I thought the younger actors were all just very charismatic. Uh, Yahya Abdul-Mateen as well. And so even when they were just talking jargon, you know, like so much of the movie is like just them spouting exposition. I found it somehow riveting and it did take me back to the experience of watching the originals where at that time it was so fun to try and figure out what the allegory was. And obviously here, I think we're a little more resistant, like the film itself is a little more resistant to, you know, that kind of approach, that kind of reading. But it was just so fun to try to like piece together everything that they were saying and just watch them talk to each other. Yeah, I mean, they they still have hot chemistry, Carrie-Anne Moss and uh, and Keanu Reeves. And it's it's a love story, ultimately. I think that's what connected with me. You know, when they kiss at the end, I cried. I will fully admit that I cried because I was like, I don't know. It, it There's like a moment where it cuts back to the original kiss and then they kind of, they kiss again and I was just bawling. Um, Keanu is so defeated in this too, throughout the, and he, even when they win. I feel like the entire the entire movie he's at the same level of just kind of resignation, like absolute like bottom scraping depression. He barely. I mean, that was that was. I was like, is he gonna like? He's supposed to be the uh, the, the messiah. I, mean, I remember the original ones. He's pretty like he's pretty reserved, but you know he also like gets he has like a steely eyed reserve it's you know and kind of and some bravado his way through some walls yeah some bravado the meme is outdated now but sad keanu was once a very important meme on the internet the you know the messianism of the film was played down which was good because every blockbuster now is about that like dune and it's really it's really tiresome and and repetitive and you know they always have to have those scenes where they meet the tribal elders and discuss their status as the messiah they're always like it's not me i'm not the one yeah, i think he even they even kind of reference that to me the the self the self referencing the uh, meta levels that this movie kind of is going for got a little tiresome and uh i and i actually the sincerity of the love story was touching but that's also sort of a, a trope at this point in these movies where love is the key to like a metropolis you know, there's a two you know the messiah is not just one it's a it's the it's the uh, yin and the yang together yeah like in metropolis another hollywood film yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair i i enjoyed the meta layers a lot though i think mainly because meta reflexivity is such a trope in sci-fi and superhero and fantasy movies right now but here i just thought that it it the movie wasn't trying to like redeem itself through the meta reflexivity which is the vibe i get with right. you know marvel or dc movies that's very, true that's true you know can i also say that i just i i just wish that the action had been better too i i and i think the first scene it really i was like oh good this is like finally some this these are some fights that are filmed in a way that is really interesting and makes sense again. And then it just kind of drifted. It, there wasn't a return to that kind of, that really like visually interesting action that that you see in the first couple films where, or at least the first film, as I remember it. 
I did like that set piece towards the end, though, where you have all of the bodies kind of plummeting out the of the zombie, windows. The zombie apocalypse thing. Yeah, <laughs> and you've got yeah. um, you've got Keanu and Carrie Ann Moss on the motorcycle, kind of weaving through these plummeting bodies. I I thought that was kind of cool. I just. It just relied on him going, like, pushing his hands out over and over again. And re- I, lo- I love the suicide bots. I thought that you was like a, that? New, a new idea, yeah. And it Conceptually, good. yeah. Yeah. It the suicide good. bot part was cool. But what I wanted was more of that hand-to-hand kind of kung fu stuff. Yeah. But, you know, this is just me. I'm just one one audience member. The one big bullet time set piece was also narrated by Groff. Right. Or was it Neil Patrick Harris? Now I can't remember. Uh, when he actually refers to it as bullet time. Yeah. As like yeah. During the scene that should have had a lot more Christopher Lambert in it. <laughs> I have, yeah, I, I didn't love the action, I will say. And it's, I still, I just love the style of the movie, of the whole, this universe a lot. Like, I think a lot of us did, you know, when it first came out, it was so sexy. I mean, even now, rewatching Matrix 1, it's incredibly sexy. And... I did the wish that the second one has a bloody orgy in it. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's the, true. Uh, the the rave scene, right? Yeah. I only watched it for the first time quite recently, so I was shocked to to see that no, in a mainstream it, blockbuster. Yeah, it really goes there, and I thought it was disappointing that you know I did find the action disappointing because I love their like cloaks and glasses and Yahya Abdul Mateen's like outfits, but I want to see them choreograph better, and I think. So Yoon Wu-Ping was the choreographer, the martial arts choreographer for the first movie, I believe. And I don't think he worked on this one. And so I think there's... Yeah, it relied on a lot of like Keanu just sort of summoning some sort of deep resentment and then <laughs> blasting people. No, love it. he summoned. Love, sorry, sorry. <laughs> my fault. So that's, I'm, I'm, I'm reading my own experience into the film. <laughs> um, the other thing is that the film switches from, I think, Chicago to San Francisco, right? So you're immediately starting to read this as like a critique of of tech, of the rise of of the tech industry, big tech, yeah, and, and and big tech. And I just feel like the the uh, meta reflexivity kind of allows it to pull punches in a way, and you never really get any kind of substantive critique of anything other than Warner Brothers pushing the filmmakers to make a which which. Maybe, you know, I'm expecting too much from the film, but I, but it sort of sets you up to expect something like that. I think if you look hard enough, you'll find some critique. <laughs> you well, can some, join some dots. Some, <laughs> sure, some, some, some. The, the post-credit sequence undercut that stuff quite a bit. Featuring a cover of a, a Rage Against the Machine song, sort of a, a more palatable version. Not that the original, I'm sure the original is pretty palatable, but yeah. Do you, do you mean the bit with the cats? Yes. Mm, yeah, I heard about that. I actually didn't stick around to see that with my own eyes. Oh, wait, wait, what is what? that? I yeah, thought there was... I saw it on HBO. So you got to watch see... through the, the end of the credits for that. So you're not talking about uh, Keanu and Carrie Ann flying into the. Oh sky. no, they're not in this. They're not in this part. Oh no, there's like a post credits sting. Oh okay. Well, maybe that's what. I, maybe that's that'll answer all my questions. Yeah, that'll give me <laughs> crystal clear political critique is delivered in that class. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. You know, I just wanted more like pointed allegory, less meta critique of their own of their own work as they're doing it. That's fair. But did you not read it as like a an allegory for for transness? Because I I feel like there's a scene I where. Think that's a, Interesting read. Yeah, that's a good read. 
not not to sort of keep going on about the matrix but there there's a moment when um neo is or thomas is in the therapist's office and he says something like nobody believes me or no one can understand how can I have a word for what I'm experiencing and the therapist is just saying like oh you're suicidal this is your trauma and I thought that was um that was maybe Lana kind of speaking to not being able to articulate something that was a reality for her and and not really being understood by the very people who are meant to be helping her That's a good point. And I have to say one of the most interesting things about the film to me in terms of the commentary was this like, I won't call it like anti-therapy. I don't think the film is anti-therapy, but this idea that wellness and the ways in which our vocabulary of wellness and mental health can be weaponized in order to like Keep us in the office. I don't know how to say it without sounding cheesy, but in order to keep us all, you know, productive and working. Because that's kind of what's happening, right? This analyst. And it's so funny that the villain of this movie is the analyst, you know? it's it, There's just something... There's something very psychoanalytic about all of it, and I think that relates probably to what you're saying, Simran, about, you know, probably... It's drawn from Lana's experience of being a trans woman in the medical establishment, I'm sure, or having medical experiences um, in in that position. But I thought that was really fascinating, and and again, the kind of the kind of social commentary that that does seem rare in these kinds of movies. It's like kind of complicated, and 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 pointing to this idea that yeah, that many of the ways in which we are told to keep functioning and surviving in this world might actually be linked to the ways in which, you know, the status quo is maintained. I thought that was significant. You know, all all these things are really touched on by the film more than addressed by it because it's so concerned with being an entertainment product that, you know, most of these things are are really not developed. You know, you have to you have to give the film a lot of credit. You know, you have to be very generous to the film in some ways for for these things. That's and, why I was uh, that, saying, if you look hard enough, you'll find yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, it's good. It's good that that stuff is there. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it, this might be a good pivot point for a movie where you don't have to look too hard to figure out what <laughs> messages it's trying to convey. Adam McKay's "Don't Look Up," also a holiday blockbuster. I was wondering Maybe. what what movie would follow that segue because there's a few in our in our list. Um, this one yeah. really hits you over the head and in the <laughs> face and on the body, like Keanu Reeves in the Matrix with its message. I think we all saw this one, right? I saw it. Uh, I also saw it. <laughs> uh, so this movie is I don't know. Should I describe the plot? No. No. It's about a comet destroying the world. It's yeah. about a comet's destroying the world. And two scientists played by uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence who are trying to tell the world. And it's a comedy. About it. Yeah. A comedy. Uh, a yes. satire, if I may. Yeah. Sat- political satire. It's yeah. about climate change. <laughs> And the coronavirus <laughs> pandemic, maybe. I found this movie really, it left a terrible taste in my mouth. And I think it's just this sort of, it reflects this elite liberal mentality and kind of like 
uh, what, what, is, what do you call smug. it? It's smug. It's extremely it's smug. smug. Thank you. I'm trying to. I'm trying to be politic here. <laughs> it, it's its smugness is reflected in the fact that it seems like it was written in an afternoon in a writer's room. <laughs> and I have to, it's not funny. Huge logical. It's not like, funny. Yeah. It's not funny. There are huge logical gaps in the plot, which I'm not saying every movie has to have like extremely sound logic. But if your movie is trying to make some comment on current political realities and, you know, how people are swayed by propaganda and all of this stuff. I think you have to put in a little more work into showing how these things play out. I mean, so I I finished it yesterday and I, I hadn't even gotten to the part where a whole group of, I guess, deniers, people who deny the existence of this comet, are at a rally and they're, you know, shouting the slogan, don't look up, which is kind of a, you know, they don't want to look up at this like comment. And yeah. one person just looks up and sees this like star in the sky, which is the comment. And then they all turn against the current president played by Meryl Streep as I guess a sort of Trump allegory, Trump and other, Wait, I think Hillary other characters. Right. <clears throat> I thought that Meryl Streep was playing Lucrecia Martel in it. Did you notice that? <laughs> okay, looks I did not notice like style-wise. Yeah, she was styled to look exactly like yeah. Lucrecia Martel, don't, which don't made me wonder if... Lucrecia like this. No, I, I mean, I'm, I love Lucrecia Martel, but she looked just like her. I, I thought maybe Adam McKay was at Venice, you know, and saw her as the president of the jury. He wishes. That could be. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, that's so, so that's funny. what all I, whenever Streep was on, I just thought she was Lucrecia Martel. But you know, and you're like, we're in yeah. good hands here. Yeah, yeah, like maybe yeah. this is gonna get good. <laughs> but but that uh, just to finish my thought on that scene. So they're at this rally, and then this one guy looks up, and then they're all suddenly convinced that this president was lying to them this whole time. I mean, that's just not how. That's not how party politics work. That's not how, you know, people's opinions change. It's, it's such a simplistic and condescending understanding of misinformation. It's not how movies work either. That's how Hollywood blockbusters work. That's how Hollywood blockbusters Fair. work. It's like when everyone points up in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. <laughs> True. But they're actually, I think, like seeing that... that UFO. In this case, that could be anything. Yeah. It could just be like a cloud. A shooting Oh, there's a shot of the comet. Yeah, but it's 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 a you know, speck. It's a speck. It's a speck. Yeah. You know, I don't know why anyone would watch this film instead of watching Melancholia, which is a great film about the same thing. Right. Uh, but now that Julia Fox has endorsed this movie on social media, I think we have to reevaluate it. It's time. I think, I think one that... of I think one of the things that's most annoying about this film is that you've got. Uh, Adam McKay grabbing you by the shoulders, shaking you, screaming that climate change and global warming is real for two and a half hours, but then not really saying anything else about it other than the fact that we're doomed. And I, I don't have a problem with the film kind of having a pessimistic outlook. I, I That's not like a, a kind of fundamental issue with the film. But the way the kind of conversation around the film has played out on online and in all the kind of reviews and in the takedowns of the reviews has been kind of, I don't know, I feel like critics have been um, 
I don't want to use the word attacked because then that makes it seem like we've done something that's worth attacking. How about that? Scolded scolded is a much better word. The way that critics have been scolded by kind of um, scientists. By Nathan Robinson at Current Affairs. Well, really? Yeah, he wrote a whole piece about how critics, just like a BuzzFeed piece, critics are wrong. This proves it. Yeah, exactly. But by saying like, oh, people who didn't like the movie or people who thought everything was sort of heavy handed are missing the point that, you know, climate change is coming for us and we are actually not paying attention. Of course, that's true. But that's not activism. That's not intervention. That's not a kind of political action to just point that out. You need to take it a step further and do something. Or you need to make the movie funny and make it a funny movie. Like, <laughs> you know, like you can make a movie, you can make a movie about doom being inevitable. Dr. Strangelove, which I think this movie is like clearly. Oh my God, that was terrible. Ripping off utterly and totally. But like that movie is funny. It's, or, yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it is in itself. Is not... It has some qualities in itself, you know, right, apart right. from its like so-called political value. Don't Look Up is really a film about the end of the Hollywood studio system in the face of things like Netflix and Amazon. So the, it has the same problem that The Matrix Resurrections has, which is that it has to be in the form of an 80s Hollywood blockbuster. So, so this is not a very elastic form, you know? So to make statements about whatever it is in the matrix resurrections or whatever it is in this film is hard for them to do now because the culture has moved beyond this form and people like adam mckay and even lana wachowski are still working in this form that is now a relic of a a different world what do you mean by this form i mean the form of a hollywood blockbuster like at the end when everyone's sitting around the table together and there's one black man and there's one evangelical Mm -hmm. christian and the whole family is there and they're talking about it's you know as long as we had family that was what what was important Mm -hmm. bam then the comet comes and then everybody is wiped off the face of the earth yeah i I mean this is the spielberg ending this is the spielberg ending and you know the same thing is true of matrix resurrections which i liked a lot more but it still has, like we were saying, it has the Metropolis ending, you know, which is that, you know, the heart, the head and the heart combined to overcome all problems. This is not a functional way of addressing the problems of the present. Jonah Hill is probably the only person who maybe got a couple like good lines in. I have to say, I thought Timothy Chalamet was like funny. I knew you were going to say that. I th- he was I funny he in the was liquor not- store scene, but then he was not good in the rest of the movie. Yes. I did laugh when he uh, goes to Dr. Mindy, who's played by Leonardo DiCaprio's house at the end, and he says, like, uh, to his wife, to Dr. Mindy's wife. Oh, yeah, are you a gamer? That yeah, a I'm Fire Puma 14 on Twitch, you a gamer? And she says, "Do who said I game? Somehow <laughs> that one line kind of... <laughs> Really, really did uh, tickle The, the me. most depressing thing in the movie was the idea that Jonah Hill would be the last man on Earth. It was like the end of history and the last man, and the last man is Jonah Hill, you know? And it that also, was just sad. I mean, it made no scientific sense, but I'm not going to go down that that it, it, it's path. It was like the end of, like of Idiocracy when the guy from the Ghetto Boys shows up, uh, you know? But it wasn't, it wasn't funny. It was just sad. What about those sort of weird documentary inserts that oh are just kind of, like the stock footage just kind of slotted in there to oh God, make us make a us baby. feel like you know there's real life drama and stakes happening? Oh, I, and, I and to make us feel like this rock. is about the world. Yeah. Let's have a shot of some random people in some other part of the world looking at the sky. I 
It's I a shorthand, it... right? Yeah, no. It's and a shorthand for, for what? what, though? Yeah, what is a shorthand for? <laughs> it's a shorthand for relevance. Um, relevance, but... yeah. <laughs> I just have to say, like, there's this one thing that bothers me a lot about this movie, which is that when the scientists, you know, they have their own internal disagreements and Dr. Mindy becomes like some kind of Dr. Fauci parody and then he turns kind of evil for a little bit and becomes a celebrity and is, is, I guess, swayed by all the glamour of the celebrity life. And then they come back together and in this montage of 10 minutes, they start like a people's movement, you know? (laughs) Right, right, right. With a mural on the wall of people holding hands. Yeah, and oh, right, yeah. And just because this comet is like again visible as a, a speck in the sky, and then they receive a call that India, China, and Russia tried their deflection mission and that failed, and they're like, We've everything everything we've tried has ended. It it's all doomed. So this whole people's movement was just relying on India, China, and Russia sending a doing their own like mission. That's just that's it just makes no sense. That's not how a people's movement. Like, why? Why do they have an office, a campaign okay, office? Okay, okay. To... I think we've reached peak. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just peak what scorn is... at this point. You're listening to the Film Comment podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Let's move on at this point to a movie that I think we liked a little bit more than Don't Look Up, The Lost Daughter, the Maggie Gyllenhaal. Another Netflix banger. Um... Load it up and fire it. The Lost Daughter is an Elena Ferrante adaptation. I have not read the book that this is based on. so I think Simran and I are Ferrante heads. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And well, I hate, to, I hate to reinforce the binary, but I didn't read it either. <laughs> Ouch. We're more we're more Nausgaard guys. Yeah. Nausgaard bros. You look, you look like that. I actually like Nausgaard too. But I, I do love Ferrante's work. And I think, Simran, you you like this film a lot, and I actually don't. But I, I think I'm curious to, you know, give you a chance to, to convince Defense me. Defense first. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I really like this movie because I feel like it captures the essence of the difficult Ferrante woman, the unlikable woman who is selfish, puts herself first, uh, is kind of a sexual being, is intellectually hungry, um, a little bit irresponsible, unlikable. I feel like these are all qualities that come through in all of Frante's books and they feel very kind of purely distilled into this character played by Olivia Coleman, leader. Um, I really like how uh, true it is to the book. I guess that will not be of interest to people who haven't read the book but those who have um will kind of see similarities but what Maggie Gyllenhaal does that's different is that she sort of tweaks the structure a little bit and she has these two parallel storylines kind of playing out um uh, I guess uh intermittently um cut um, next to each other and so you have 
um, the young leader played by Jesse Buckley, who I think is really brilliant. And you have the older leader um, played by Olivia Coleman on the, the Greek island. And there's a, a kind of, there's a moment where we find out that um, as a young woman, she left her children. And that is revealed very early in the book, but it's it's kind of withheld until a little bit later in the film. And I thought that was interesting how she kind of played around with that a little bit. I also just want to give people who might not know the story just a little pricey, just because it's a very, I think, specific tale. So oh yeah, about... sorry, I jumped right in without explaining the plot. Oh no, it's it's, I mean, it's not a very complicated plot, but it's about a woman who's, like in her 50s, I believe, and she's... 48. She's 48, oh, yeah. Okay, 48. Um, and who's an academic um, mother of two grown-up daughters. Um, and she goes on a vacation in... So the book is completely set in Italy, you know, and um, I, I can't remember exactly where she goes to vacation in the book, but, um, you know, she, I believe... Someone correct me if I'm wrong. She's based in Rome, Mm, don't know about that but it's like she's an Italian character and she goes on holiday elsewhere in Italy and the reason why Maggie Gyllenhaal ended up changing the location was for mainly practical reasons because I believe they were going to set it in the states in somewhere like Maine um, and then for sort of practical logistical reasons because they had an international cast they ended up um, doing it in Greece. Okay, interesting. I didn't know that background. But yeah, so it's this woman and, you know, um, an urban woman and urbane woman who goes on the seaside holiday and encounters a family from Naples, which includes a very young mother uh, who has a little child and the child's doll goes missing. And so that's kind of the crux of the story. And Around that particular absence or loss of that doll, um, there is this whole narrative about this woman's own past um, as a very reluctant mother, like you were saying, Simran. An unnatural mother, as she calls herself in the movie. And her kind of having had to navigate her academic ambitions with having to, you know, raise uh, two young daughters. And we get sort of flashbacks of that and her infidelities and coming to terms with with parenthood. Yeah, seeing this mother-daughter relationship basically triggers a whole bunch of like buried emotions uh, and memories that she's repressed. And it plays out in this fragmented way in the film. So one crucial thing in the book, and not to be the, you know, the book is better person. But the crucial thing in the book is not just that she's triggered by this image of motherhood, but that she herself grew up in Naples and then left to gain an education and sort of in search of this kind of upward intellectual mobility, which is such a theme in Ferrante's work, right? The Neapolitan Quartet is about a girl who dreams of like getting out of Naples and becoming a writer and an academic. And so when she sees this young mother who in the book is supposed to be 18 or 19 or something, and who comes from this sort of crude, you know, she's, she's just, she represents to the narrator a lower class and crude, you know, uh, and milieu that she has escaped. And so part of what she feels is like this, it triggers her memories of motherhood, but also a kind of fear and resentment of this person who seems like the person she has worked all her life not to be, you know? Yeah, like a, a shame and a class anxiety. Exactly. And I just think 
I have several reservations about the film, which I don't think is a bad film. I think it's actually well-directed. But Dakota Johnson is so miscast because, first of all, they're not as far apart in age as they're supposed to be. And Dakota Johnson's family, like that family, instead of being from, I don't understand how like Queens or Staten Island. They're where, Greek. They're Greek. They're like a big Greek they're, immigrant They're Greek-American like, semi-criminal yeah. family that's vac- but, vacations in this house they own where they right. have a lot of influence on this island. But Like but, the Greek but, mafia, right? The yeah. Greek mafia, you know, you're familiar with it. <laughs> yeah, and that's, and in, in the book, like they're supposed to be a kind of mob-ish Naples family. But mm-hmm. the... Dakota Johnson feels so elegant and like upper class and she doesn't really break out of that in the performance. I I didn't think that. My problem with Dakota Johnson in this movie was not that she seemed too elegant. My problem was that there were several scenes where she was required to do a lot of acting with her face and I could not tell what, like, I couldn't tell what she was supposed to be. I thought she was coming on to... Olivia Coleman's character the first couple of times, or then like she was disgusted with her. I was just very confused. I thought she I, was good. You thought she was good. Yeah. I did not think she was good. I thought Olivia Coleman was, was very good. I don't think she is bad. I just think she is completely like, like I said, I just think she doesn't, her casting takes a layer away from the story that then the resulting film feels very simple to me. Like the film to me becomes just about, like reluctant motherhood, which feels like a very trendy topic right now. But the story is not just about reluctant motherhood. It's about class anxiety. And it's about, well, you know... That came through in the film that to comes, me. I think that comes through. I didn't read the book, so that I was mean, very apparent. It's very hard for me to separate the book in my mind. So maybe I'm, you know, I'm coming from a very biased position in that way. But I did, I want this to be said, <laughs> that the book is much richer. Huh. And there's a lot the adaptation loses. <laughs> I, I never, I, I, like I said, I haven't read the book. Uh, I kind of, I liked it. I liked the movie overall. I didn't love it, but I thought it was good. It's main, you know, I thought, I thought everyone was good in it. I thought as someone who hadn't read the book, I thought the flashbacks that the film would have worked without the flashbacks. And it was kind of like a Highsmith, you know, story. It reminded me of Patricia Highsmith without the flashbacks. And, you know, as soon as the hat pin was introduced, I knew that it was, you know, a Chekhovian hat pin. Um, that was going to come back. And um, the the thing that was strange about it was that it was a Netflix film that is kind of trying to take over the space of the European art film. So it was shot by uh, Alice Rohrwacher's uh, cinematographer, who also works for Eliza Hittman. Alan Lubart. And, you know, it has this it has this feel of really trying to be a European art film made by an American for streaming service. Uh, I, I felt that the film rises above that, you know, uh, but there was, you know, it was because it's because because it's weird. You know, it's a, it's a weird movie. Ed Harris is very weird in it. You know, his character is so strange. There's a lot of there's a lot of things in it that, you know, aren't, you know, really like in an American film. But don't you think it's weird in like a pandering way? Like it's really trying to announce itself as different from. Your yes, because regular... it's a Netflix version of a European art film, <laughs> so it's trying to trying to tell the viewer that that's what it is and that's what it's doing, you know. But, but in the context of that, you know, I I first of all, I I don't know what this says, but I it was better than I expected it to be. That's you know? fair, yeah. 
that was the, I, that was the first thing. I have to say, I also had the reaction that this is better than I expected an American adaptation of a Ferrante novel to be. That that was also my reaction. But I I do want to say, since you mentioned Alice or Watcher and Ellen Luart, I think the my brilliant friend HBO series in the second season there are a couple episodes directed by Alice and that's I mean that series is I think wonderful and save it for the uh, Ferrante podcast yeah I know but uh, if if people are you know seeking (laughs) if people like this and want to seek out other adaptations that I think do a better job then I recommend that series very much you're saying an HBO TV series was better than this movie I am actually wow <laughs> on the film comment podcast folks <laughs> oh my god i did i did feel that paul mezcal was a strange choice i felt that role had been beefed up from the book and i i didn't really think he was great in there oh the role is definitely beefed up for him i mean when i heard that he was cast in that part i was like really they cast this rising and sort of beloved now beloved star in this very minor part but yeah i think they they definitely padded it out a bit well i have some things to say about this but they're not i don't i didn't like it very much so maybe we should just like at least we can we can reach a consensus that this is a pretty good movie (laughs) (laughs) i just found it to be very basic i found it like the narrative to be like stripped down to a point where you're almost like i felt like i was reading an outline of a of a movie and i think that uh, that was particularly irking in scenes that where there was like more emotional and psychological complexity required of the filmmaking. And in addition to the acting, the scene between Olivia Coleman and Paul Mezcal, where she invites him out casually to, to dinner, and then that it cuts to them laughing hysterically. They're having the time of their life. This like you know, hot young man and this 48 year old woman who's like, you know, pretty depressed and grumpy up to this point and basically alienating everybody around her. And at no point does she say anything funny. Like we never see the fun. When is she fun? Why is she? How is she charming these people? I kind of need to see like the charm, not just like the plot point. She's charming. I think I can put a cap on that. Okay. Okay. The problem Okay, she's 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 an intellectual. She's a complete professor. She's a translator. Who, by the way, is is translates books into Italian, not from Italian to English. Yates to Italian, right? Well, they change. You know what? Okay, that be that as be that as it may. The biggest revelation that undercut her character was the revelation that she's a big fan of the song "Living on a Prayer." <laughs> During the dance sequence with Ed Harris. Yeah, I don't think uh, that I, person would be a Bon Jovi fan. And why does this family of criminals care about this woman at all? Because she wouldn't move her chair on the beach. She wouldn't move her chair. She stood up to them as she should have. In the book, again, there's like a clear kind of class element, right? Like She's a snob. And so they are both enamored with her and want her approval and resent. No, but uh, that's what I'm saying. That that is lost in the movie. And that's why you're like, oh, why do they care about this? Some things get lost in translation. Here, that that uh, I think were necessary. I I accepted them. Listen, yeah, go ahead. I live in Brooklyn. Okay, I live in Brooklyn. <laughs> I don't know where you live, Clinton and Devika. I know where Simran also lives. Brooklyn, but clearly okay. not in your Westchester. circle, Scott. <laughs> I know. I've I've been exposed to a lot of families that are like that. 
you know, you know, that I've been exposed to a lot of families that aren't like that too. Right. But, but your paranoia does not, I mean, it's not like I've been, I'm paranoid about like criminal families, maybe like singling me out and harassing me. That's good. That doesn't mean that they are. That doesn't mean that they are. It's, I think that was more the other way around though. It's not, it's not her character sort of, um, feeling like she's being scrutinized by them, but more them feeling that they've been scrutinized by yeah. her. Yes. And that's she's why they kind them. of appeal. That's why they appeal to her and like kind of try to talk to her. It speaks to a class anxiety on their sure, side sure. as well. I didn't buy a lot of the uh, the interactions between the characters. They didn't they didn't ring true to me. Well, I think all, that the they're... characters themselves, like especially Olivia Coleman's character, is really it, she's a really interesting person. The flashback character less so, but in the in the now, I think that that character really does is uh, rich. I think the I think the women in the family were trying to protect her from the men in the family too, which was why it was strange when Vasily makes the teenagers at the movie theater shut up. Right, right. I will say of the three movies we've discussed so far, I it's the best made yes. without a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. Some, something no that doubt. is sort of subtext here that we're not really kind of saying explicitly but I guess we're all gesturing to it in the way we're talking about this particular set of movies is that when you are reviewing films I mean I can only speak in my own case but for a mainstream publication the films that you are looking at sometimes the stuff that you watch is not that interesting and I think that The Lost Daughter is really interesting within a kind of section of Hollywood cinema. Certainly. The Netflix art film, yes. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I think something like Don't Look Up, which is being widely watched, is not that interesting. I think Matrix has some really interesting ideas, not all of them executed perfectly, but it, it there's, there's stuff to think about. And I guess the challenge of watching these kind of movies week in, week out, and trying to go in with an open mind and then say, something interesting about them. In my case, in, in a very kind of short word count, I write capsule reviews. So, you know, I'm having to figure out what the film is doing and say something interesting or hopefully funny in less than 300 words. And so it's it's quite, quite nice to be able to kind of talk about them in a little bit more detail, but also some of these movies, they don't hold up to sort of deep scrutiny, um, which is not to say that we shouldn't scrutinize them, but it's just interesting thinking about them as a set, I guess. Yeah, I think Scott's getting at that with his Netflix praise for the for the, yeah. Yeah, the production of Netflix <laughs> as a studio. I I think this movie is is good. It, I just feel like there's certain that it is a good first movie. Maybe is one way yeah. of putting. It. I think that there's some things that you know if Maggie Gyllenhaal continues to make films in this vein, she'll can she'll refine and and we'll see. Her um, next Ferranti adaptation will be a better one. <laughs> she should do now. I'm waiting for a you know. What's the new? What's the Morning Star? Right, her adaptation of the Morning oh, Star. Oh yeah. <laughs> so speaking of literary adaptations, this is a transition. That's what I'm doing now. The uh, another film that is new and is out is the Tragedy of Macbeth, the Scottish play, directed by Joel Cohen, starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. And I, Devik and I have seen this. Scott, I believe you have not seen it. No, I haven't right? seen it. I, I want to see it, but I have not been able to. Simran? I have seen it, yeah. And uh, I don't love it. I, I'm not um, 
and Macbeth head, I guess. Like I read the play, I've seen the play, uh, I've seen some of the many film adaptations of it. This one for me felt quite like kind of strangely bloodless. And I know that the the black and white aesthetic of the film and the kind of stripped back staging of it is obviously kind of intentional, but I felt that there was an emotional kind of stripping out um, or the performances were kind of stripped back in a, in a way that I didn't really feel enhanced the text. Um, I thought Frances McDormand is quite bad in this. I don't know, what did you guys think? I agree on that point. I actually like the film a lot more than you did. Um, I would call myself a Macbeth head, maybe. I I enjoyed it a lot, but Frances McDormand is not good in it. I think she kind of phones it in and it <laughs> Definitive. I just, it bothered me a lot because, you know, Lady Macbeth is the heart of, of this story. And I was just she very does, disappointed. She does bring like a Queen's accent to the role and like yeah, that, delivery that. I feel like that was probably. But that's just the language. That's just reading reading the words. <laughs> yeah, that's just minimum. And she's a trained actress. Like I wouldn't expect anything less. So the film as a whole, I did think was inventive and did in its telling offer something new in its reading of Macbeth. But I think her performance just feels very reading aloud the lines. And the I just want to shout out a couple things that I really loved about the movie. First of all, Ross, who I believe is played by Alex Hassel. And I think it's a conception of Ross that is pretty unique um, and sort of campy. There's one scene in which he goes to talk to the weird sisters and there's a close-up of his face and he lifts one eyebrow. It was like a painting or something, you know? I thought it was just... And it was very cinematic too. Uh, and, you know, almost harkening back to like early or silent cinema. Um, and this is not my take. Uh, the critic Kay Austin Collins, who writes for Rolling Stone, said this to me in conversation and I thought it was so smart. He said that this movie presents Ross as another weird sister. Like he's a fourth weird sister, which I thought was really spot on. You know, I think he's, even though it's not explicit, he feels like queered in a way. Um, and I just thought that actor was magnetic and fantastic. So I loved that. People have been talking a lot about uh, Catherine Hunter, who plays like the witches um, and does a lot of kind of great bodily gymnastic or acrobatic performance. I think she's really fantastic. and. Denzel is Denzel, you know, he, every line delivery, you're like, that's Denzel Washington. You know, that sounds like Denzel, looks like Denzel. I don't know. I thought he was, he was Macbeth. But I mean, it's a very Denzel Macbeth, you know, you never forget oh, that this is Denzel <laughs> in, and you've like watched him in all these movies and you, I was thinking of other movies that I've seen Denzel in. Like for me, he was summoning the ghosts of past Denzels, but he mm. is so watchable and he just has this resignation that is so central to the character of Macbeth that I don't know if adaptations always cinematic adaptations always capture and he tosses the lines off in this kind of really casual way and he has such an authority with the way he speaks but that's not kind of like forceful and um sort of stepping into the role in a in a kind of kingly way yeah. he just kind of 
he just tosses them off. It's not um, grandiose, but exactly, it's, it's like a world weary. You know, I mean, you just sense his weariness in this not theatrical. I, I'm using it as an adjective, um, but he's still regal. You know, yeah. His hair is gray. His beard is gray. He just looks older and a little bit more beaten down. And he does talk. He does not give a theatrical performance. I think. I think it's very uh, th- these extremely artificial lines. He had he somehow seemed to kind of come from him naturally. Like he seems to be thinking them up as he's saying them. Yeah. Well, I I have a question as someone who didn't see it, and I and I love Denzel too. I was wondering, I don't really know why Joel Cohen made this film, and I was wondering what its relationship is to the black and white Orson Welles Macbeth, which I think is great. You know, it seems like a strange project to do. It seemed like it came out of the blue. I know it was delayed because of the pandemic uh, when they were shooting it. But what does anyone know why this, you know, why Joel Cohen decided to make a Macbeth without his brother with Denzel Washington? As far as I know, it was uh, because of uh, we saw a and a with Francis McDormand and, and uh, Joel Cohen after a screening at New York Film Festival. And it was because Francis McDormand wanted to play Lady Macbeth and oh. talked him into it and has wanted to do this for years. And uh, the reason he did it alone is because his brother no longer wants to make movies mm. and sort well, of wants is in semi-retirement. Well, as, and as so, like, you know, it's all pretty straight like pretty boring but as our friend think... adam Naiman said uh we now know that ethan's the funny one okay yeah. <laughs> yeah um i that's a good question scott like why this film now by this director i i actually i don't think i stayed for the q a so i didn't know that uh francis mcdormand have, have any of you it. seen the the wells version of Macbeth? No, i have years and, years. and the polanski as well and the I, kurosawa of course yeah how this film is distinctive is in that it is really, I, I hate to just use this word. It, it is very cinematic. And I know that's like, I hate to use it, the word so broadly, but it's really using tools of cinema to bring out the, you know, mood of, of Macbeth in a way that the past adaptations are also cinematic, but not, I guess, as um, reliant on form. You know, they're more, they they stage this epic, like the Polanski film is, you know, is just the way it's staged is is really remarkable. And the way it like, um, the way it really drills into the, the gory and bloody spectacle of Macbeth. Here, it's really stripped down and bare, but so much is conveyed just through framing and editing and contrast, you know, I mean, just the opening scene of Macbeth, like Denzel walking into the screen out of this fog, it's arresting, you know? And so I, I thought that was just quite interesting. I imagine also that another compelling reason to make this movie now is that it has some, you know, it's a movie about politics and it's an extremely cynical movie about politics. And I think that the, the use of Ross in this movie, which Devika mentioned, Ross is a very minor character in other adaptations and in the original play. And in this movie, he becomes this kind of like malleable political connective tissue that is constantly shifting allegiances and kind of playing people against each other with without saying anything. And uh, the, the film is able to convey that visually, as Devika is saying. So we're going to be out of time soon. So I think maybe let's talk about 
one other movie that we all wanted to discuss. And then I do want to give Scott time to shout out some of the underseen films that he mentioned. So Scott, I actually do want to know why you liked being the Ricardos. Why did I like being the Ricardos? Well, because I feel it's this film where Aaron Sorkin actually admits that he doesn't care about politics. That his only politics is showbiz. And, uh, you know, and the, her- the heroic swell of music as they get J. Edgar Hoover on the phone to clear them of any charge of communists. Yes. So the J. Edgar Hoover thing is really the heart of the movie, because that's pure fiction. That did not happen. And in order to put that into the movie, he, he had to cut out what Desi Arnaz really said, which was that, um, you know, accusations against Lucy that she's a communist are not legitimate. There's nothing legitimate about her, not even her hair. Not even her red hair. You know, I'm paraphrasing it poorly. Mm-hmm. Right. But so he had to cut that out. That's a very famous thing in the history of that show. And he had to add J. Edgar Hoover into it, who never called that, never did that. And, you know, that's really suspect politically that you're exonerated by the head of the FBI of not being a communist when you, in fact, were a communist. <laughs> Yes. And, uh, you know, it's just this big showbiz moment where we hear this voice of this terrible person coming through a phone in front of a live audience to uh, exonerate her. Who then cheer wildly when they find out it's J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, you know, I guess they're like pro-blacklist people in the audience that day at I Love Lucy. Uh, and it was that was really strange and awful. And uh, yet and yet I still enjoyed watching that film. Uh, I thought that their performances were so surreal and bizarre. You know, they were like post, they were, they were like Lucy and Desi in heaven. You know, they, they look so much better than they did in real life or on black and white television screens. You know, Nicole Kidman's skin is so perfect in porcelain. You know, Desi looks like he was drawn by Picasso. It's the prosthetics plus the CGI. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's a post-life Desi and Lucy. You know, it is. It's really it's like they've been reanimated and like rebuilt according to somebody's memory of what they may who didn't really know them that well. Someone's (laughs) fantasy. Yeah. All all these films are being made about 40s stars now, like the one with Rooney Mara as Audrey Hepburn, the Tom Holland, Fred Astaire, the Chris Evans, Gene Kelly, because people, you know, the audience you're trying to appeal to doesn't want to watch old movies or old television shows. So now they're, you know, they're reanimating them with these big stars who then they have to do all this prosthetic work on and all the CGI on. Well, the, I mean, the, the thing that was craziest about the movie was that Nicole Kidman was not funny once. It just didn't seem like, like you just didn't buy that she could possibly be funny. She was extremely serious and extremely powerful and like constantly wielding her power behind the scenes. But like, how, how did this person make the world laugh? Question. I laughed at Nicole Kidman. You did? Yeah. Okay. You can her? quote me on that. Well, you have a you have a bigger heart than me. Uh, Scott, they are going to, going to put this on the poster. You know that, right? <laughs> well, I laughed, at, at, Nicole I laughed Kidman. at Nicole Kidman. Yeah. But I, I, that's that. Hey, let him try. <laughs> I, I haven't really seen any of Aaron Sorkin's recent films. I, I love The Social Network, and A Few Good Men is uh, basically a meme in my house, and uh, I, I quite liked the West Wing, or at least the first couple of seasons of it. But I sort of tapped out around Steve Jobs. I never saw Molly's oh Game. I, <laughs> I never saw the trial of um, Chicago, Chicago 7. Seven yeah. So I don't, and so in my mind, going in to see this film, I was like, 
the most recent Aaron Sorkin films I haven't seen are bad. So this will probably be terrible. And I was pleasantly surprised by it, but my bar was very low. Um, so I don't know how it kind of stacks up to his sort of later works. It's it's the apotheosis of the late Sorkin. <laughs> Where can he go from here? Where can he go from here? The Social Network too, but only if it's also directed by David Fincher. Yeah, it's an extremely bizarre movie. I will say that being that Ricardo's. I just want oh, to yeah. say one movie. I mean, it's not about a forties Hollywood star, but one biopic in a similar vein that I am looking forward to is the Peggy Lee biopic by Todd Haynes, starring Michelle Williams. Uh, I, I didn't even hear about this. That sounds pretty good. I'd watch that. Scott, I know that you had some movies that you wanted to shout out that were big movies from the last, or under the radar movies, let's call them. I know that you were going to join us for our top 10 countdown best of 2021 and weren't able to make it. So we want to kind of give you a moment to... Yes. I, you know, it's sad to just talk about Hollywood movies that are streaming service movies in a way. It's like talking about Oscar movies, you know, it's, it's a capitulation, you know, in, in some ways. So, you know, there were a bunch of, I thought 2021 was a odd year for movies, but the critical establishment is really concentrating on films that are super normative and banal, you know, and I, I'm worried about, you know, what's going to get all these, you know, the awards that are still coming out, you know, everything's going to the power of the dog and, you know, all, all these things are getting nominated for awards that were not interesting. And there's, there's a real split now between, you know, boring movies that are just made for awards and movies that are interesting and odd and doing new things uh, from, from this, from, I'm talking from the perspective of critics, not, you know, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences or people that love uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. So, um, you know, I don't understand why a bunch of films that came out in the second half of the year didn't get as the, the kind of attention they deserved, even though they weren't ignored. And one of them was Teton, which I thought was just the most mind-blowing thing of the entire year. I am, that that is very uh, validating and I because I also really loved that movie. Yeah, it was, I'd never seen anything like that. The first half hour of that movie was, you know, so out there that, you know, you had no idea what was going to happen after that. And I, I felt that, I think that Red Rocket was another movie that's not getting enough attention. I thought that El Planeta was great and, it, you know, should have been more in the in the conversation such as it is. El Planeta actually made our, our top 20. I saw that, yeah. Well, so did Teton, right? Yeah. Yeah, but I think El Planeta was like more of a surprise and, you know, a fun to see when a really small movie like that cracks consensus. Yes. Yeah. I thought Michael Balandic's Project Space 13 was great and hilarious and totally, you know, taking taking current events into, you know, into a new way of making films that was great. I thought the same thing about Bad Luck Banging, the Romanian film. Oh, fantastic i love that movie and i i also like radu jude's other film this year that was called um uppercase print uppercase print that was great you know he made two films just like riyasuki yeah. hamaguchi but he didn't get any credit for them coming out uh bad luck banging is just uh, also a movie that you have no idea where it's going what's going to happen and also the first great covid film i thought because covid is present throughout the entire film definitely yeah 
I, I loved Labyrinth of Cinema, the Obayashi's last film. That was Me also mind blowing. That was a great movie. I put it on all my lists, and I wish more people had seen it. I think it's fantastic, and it fulfills my you know my desire for more rants against cinema rather than love letters to cinema. Yes, I feel there's yes. too many of the latter now. So. I, w- I do have to step in quickly and and say that Devika said almost exactly the same thing about Radu Judah during our uh, end of the year talk. Oh, really? Well, yeah. that's it's true. And and Labyrinth of Cinema is also remarkable because it was a film that used computer generated imagery in a completely new way. It was it was unique. It doesn't look like any other film, you know. And for someone who is who to make that at the end of his life, you know, a man in his eighties to make that is is just incredible. That that movie is frenetic. I mean, the level of energy, constant energy, and the amount of information there is in each. And I don't just mean information in, you know, in in the sense of just details about the world, but I mean like visually, you know, stylistically, yes. it's so so packed. Yeah. Yeah, and then there was a film that came out this year that I think went straight to video on demand. I don't know if anyone, uh, if it played in theaters. It was a film that I knew about because of uh, Indie Memphis, the film festival in 2020. It's called I Blame Society by a filmmaker named Jillian Horvat, not Lily Horvat. It's a film that was made in um, L.A. by an independent filmmaker who was in it herself. It's kind of at the same level as, as Belandic's Project Space 13, it may, maybe a little... Uh, higher than that. And Keith Polson's also in it. And it's a film um, by a woman about Hollywood's mania for constantly talking about casting strong female leads that totally explodes that because it's a film about a woman who decides to make a film in which she murders all her friends. And uh, that was an excellent movie that no one wanted to discuss as far as I could tell. I really thought it was great. And I look forward to seeing another film by her. That's a great roundup. Before we close out, Simran, any shout outs from you? Anything you really want to throw you know, your weight behind? I can bang the drum as well for Bad Luck Banging or, or Looney Porn. I thought that was a great movie. I am excited to see what's what's coming next. I'm done with my roundups and looking back and the, I'm, I'm hungry for new new movies now. As are we all. I'm tired of movies. I got to be honest. <laughs> I'm actually, yeah. No more. I want to move on. No more. From, from movies. Well, thank you both for joining. It was great to have you on for the first time, Simran, and great as always to have you back, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. And we'll we'll have you back again soon and, uh, you know, looking forward to hopefully a good and rich year of cinema. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by Terror Contagion, for your consideration, best documentary short. 
Academy Award winner Laura Poitras teams with forensic architecture to expose the NSO Group, an Israeli cyber weapons firm whose spyware has enabled corrupt governments to terrorize activists and journalists, including the unconscionable murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Terror Contagion is a powerful, urgent look at the rising threat of the surveillance state and its worldwide implications. Hyperallergic raves that Terror Contagion is bracing. It drives home the devastating psychological impact of being surveilled. Now available in the Academy Screening Room.